Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Uh, Acts chapter 20 will be our text this Lord's Day as we look at the first 12 verses of Acts 20. If you've been with us, you know we've been walking through the book of Acts together. And uh, when we last gathered, we wrapped up Acts 19 where we had been looking at Paul's time in Ephesus and his ministry there. And if you're with us, uh, you know how Acts chapter 19 ended. Paul had been uh, proclaiming the gospel, he and his companions there in Ephesus, and that was a town that was largely dedicated to uh, the worship of a false god, a false goddess there. And so uh, there stirs a riot then in Ephesus as people become aware that as folks are following Jesus, they're no longer going to be purchasing all these goods for idol worship. And so those who created these goods are upset because they're going to lose their livelihood. And so a, a riot forms and they grab some of Paul's companions and they haul them off into the theater, into the Colosseum there. And if you're with us, you know, as we looked at that study, we looked at how God's sovereign hand was on them, how he used a town clerk to step up and to stop that riot. But, but that's the scene uh, that we come to in Acts chapter 20. That has just taken place. And now Paul is leaving that scene and continuing in his missionary journey. And as you probably already noticed there, the title of today's sermon is about falling asleep in church. And so if you're uh, used to falling asleep in church, perhaps you could stay awake for the sermon about falling asleep in church. So uh, I do think there'll be something for us to glean along those lines as we look at one of the more famous examples from the scripture of falling asleep in church and how it worked out for Eutychus. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 12. And so out of reverence uh, for the Word of God, if you would stand as I read it for us, understanding that this is the true inspired Word from the Lord to His church today. And we should revere it as such. Acts chapter 20, uh, beginning there in verse 1. This is what we read. After the uproar ceased... Paul sent for his disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Asopater the Berean, son of Phyrus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gatius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. Intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed. For his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a while longer until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. You would pray with me. Father God, I pray as we consider this text this morning about one who fell asleep while hearing from your word, I pray that we might wake up 
that you might stir within us an understanding and a response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you would do what only your Holy Spirit can do, that you would call dead people to life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're going to look at this text today just a, a little bit differently than we have been looking at most of the texts in Acts. Uh, normally for my study, I'll, I'll take time months ahead of time, kind of scheduling out what, what verses we're going to cover. And then as we come to those verses, I usually go through a, a process that many of you use in your own personal Bible study uh, of observation, interpretation, application. And so when we come to a text... I'll start out by walking through it with you and just observing, okay, what's going on here? What's happening? Who's involved? And where's this happening at? Just what are the facts? And then we go through this process of interpreting then, okay, now now what does this mean? And that's where it's very helpful at times to look at the original languages and understand better the words that are being used and the context and cross-referencing that passage with other passages and seeing how this fits in the context of the whole of Scripture and then interpreting that. And then the last point of that process is application. Uh, To look then, how does this text apply to me? What do I need to do as a result of it? That's the normal process we go through each Lord's Day. But we're going to go through this text just a bit different because at times we'll come to to narratives and different texts where it's difficult just to walk through that process just as it is. For example, looking at Acts chapter 20 verses 1 through 12, there's some pretty easy observations. The first six verses here are basically Paul's travel log through Macedonia and Greece. So there's not a lot to interpret there. Uh, There's not necessarily a lot that we can apply from these first six verses. Now, you can spend uh, hours studying this text. I've spent time studying these texts and who these people were. And and you can look in the map in the back of your Bible and you can figure out where all they went. But there's not a lot to apply, to to, to draw out of that for us. And then after that trial log, you have quite an unusual event that takes place. where we basically have the story of a young man named Eutychus who goes to church and falls asleep, and not just falls asleep, he falls to his death, and then he's raised back to life. And so again, uh, there's there's very simple observation there. Uh, Not so much to interpret. There's some things in the text we can examine, like they, they were gathering on the first day of the week. You can talk about how that became then the tradition of the church as they would gather on the first day, Sunday, instead of the last day, Saturday. And so you have that transition in when the church would gather to worship. You can also look into uh, the, the, the part the Lord's Supper played in that early gathering, how they were gathered together for that. Uh, but that's kind of it. And so then you look at application. What's the application of Acts 20, verses 1 through 12? Well, many of you might say, well, the application is uh, preachers need to not preach so long. <laughs> in my defense... I don't believe I've ever held you over past midnight. And so I haven't got quite as long as Paul did here. But that certainly would be an application, okay? Preacher, don't, don't preach so long. And then I might look at this and say, well, another application would be, uh, congregation, don't fall asleep. But if you do, I wouldn't advise you sit on the windowsill of a third-story window when you do. At least you fall as Eutychus did to his death. Of course, that would be very difficult here because our windows, I believe, are nailed and painted shut. And they're not that high off the ground, but if you were tempted to sit on the balcony and lean over the edge there, you might want to 
consider not falling asleep. So there you have it. There's observation, interpretation, application. There's your shortest sermon you'll ever have at Bloomfield Baptist Church. But I do have something else for you. Because I do think there's something here for us to, to consider beyond just that observation, interpretation, application. I think there are questions we can ask about any text. And there's one question I want to pose about this text that will be kind of our guideline for what we'll talk about today. And the question simply is this. Why did Eutychus fall asleep? And I think we can ask that question because we need to ask the bigger question for us today. Uh, why do we fall asleep in church? Now, I'm going to do something I don't do a whole lot. Uh, I'm going to ask you to show me your hands here, uh, if you're willing to. If you would raise your hand, if you have ever fallen asleep in church. Okay, now look around. The people who don't have their hands raised, wake them up. That the reality is, all of us probably at some point, including myself, not while I've been preaching, but while others have, we've all fallen asleep at some point. And there's a, there's a real simple answer to why do people fall asleep in church. The most simple answer would be what? They're tired. <laughs> and so you're tired and you fall asleep. There, there's a physical reason you fall asleep. And so a practical application would be, if you're tired because you stayed up till 3 in the morning, then don't stay up till 3 in the morning. There's your application. But I want to think about this not so much from a physical perspective. Why are we falling asleep? Because we're physically tired. I want us to consider something else this morning. Now, we, we don't know Eutychus' story. We, we don't know why he fell asleep. It very easily could be because, I mean, after all, Paul was preaching past midnight here. But there could be a spiritual side to why he fell asleep. And I definitely believe there is a spiritual side to why we fall asleep. And that's what I want us to consider this morning as we think about why did Eutychus and why do we fall asleep in church. And so we'll start with the first point I put there in your outline. I believe one of the reasons we fall asleep in church is because we've never been awake. <laughs> we fall asleep because we've never been awake. Uh, Luke here points out this young man named Eutychus, verse 9, was sitting at the window and he sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. Now again, that could be because it was late and Paul just kept going. Or there could be the reality here that Eutychus himself had never actually been awake. Now when I say that, the first thing you might think, well what are we talking about here? Was, was Eutychus a sleepwalker or something? That, that, that's not what I'm suggesting. Although that is kind of a fascinating thing to study. This week in my study, I looked at some of the more amazing claims of people who sleepwalk or do things in their sleep. Uh, there were a number of articles written on one man who, who apparently at least claims to have this gift that when he sleeps, he actually will draw in his sleep these, these masterful works of art. When he wakes up and they ask him to draw stuff, he draws like me, not very well. But when he's sleeping... He, he does some amazing things. Now, there was another claim, and I kind of wonder about this one, but there was another claim where a man said in his sleep, he got in his car, he drove across town, and he assaulted his in-laws. So you can always say, well, honey, I was asleep. I didn't, didn't know. And, of course, there's all kinds of other things people do in their sleep that are quite fanciful and amazing. I don't think what we have here is a sleepwalking Eutychus. That, that is not what I mean when I say that perhaps he was never 
awake in the first place. No, I'm, I'm talking about Eutychus's spiritual life. You see, the Scripture gives us a very clear understanding that we are not born spiritually awake. Now, the Scripture actually describes it this way, that we are born physically alive, but spiritually dead. And the reason I believe that many of us so easily fall asleep in church and don't really get much out of God's Word when it's preached is because on the inside, spiritually, we are asleep and we are dead. Now that's the way the Scripture refers to us. And Paul writes this in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And so you ask the question, how can a person be dead and walk? I realize we've got fascinating things in our culture today, zombie apocalypse, TV shows about dead and walking. That's not what I'm talking about. No, no, the Scripture here is saying that, that physically we can be alive and everything can look great on the inside, but on the, the, on the outside, but on the inside we may be spiritually dead and lost in our sin. In order for us to become awake and alive, well, Jesus needs to do something in our life. His Holy Spirit needs to awaken us so that we might respond to the Gospel. That's why Paul goes on to say, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now, if it's hard for you to kind of grasp this and understand this whole idea of physically alive, spiritually dead, there's another way the Scripture refers to this that might help you. We see it referred to in other places, not only as spiritually dead, but as spiritually blind. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And so what I'm proposing is the reason that many of us struggle to stay awake and engaged is because we're blind to what's going on. And spiritual blindness is different than physical blindness in this way. Physically blind people usually understand that they cannot see. You're not going to encounter many physically blind people who will tell you, oh, but I can see everything. They know that they are physically blind. But spiritually blind people are blind to the reality that they're spiritually blind. Think about that for a moment. That they don't even realize the blindness that's in their own heart. They don't even realize that they're spiritually dead. But you can't take a spiritually dead person, a spiritually blind person, and expect them to respond to the truth of God's Word as one who is spiritually alive and can see would. And so I believe what you see happening here is you may have someone who is spiritually dead falling asleep. We certainly do in our churches today. But here's something we need to realize. That there is a type of preaching, uh, there is a type of church that is attractive to people who are spiritually blind. That there is a type of preaching that will draw in people who are spiritually dead and will speak to them in such a way that it excites them, that it invites them, and yet they walk out the way they came in, just as dead on the inside. 
Because there are many churches in our culture today and there are many preachers in our churches today who focus more on behavior than they do on belief. And there's a great danger here. Because we can teach people all day long how to behave and never get to the gospel. And behavior will get no one to heaven and will keep no one out of hell. And if we don't get that, if we don't understand that, and as churches, we'll keep aiming at the external and saying, we'll do this, don't do this, and you'll be okay. And we'll totally miss out on preaching the gospel. And that's what many have done. In fact, the Scripture said that's what many would do. Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will, endure, will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now think about this for a second. What the Word tells us here is that people will be drawn towards that kind of preaching that's along the line with their passions. What are the things that we are passionate for? What are the things that we want? Let me ask you today. How many of you want, how many of you desire to be sick every day of your life? Anybody? How many of you desire absolute poverty and to be at a level of poverty where you can't feed your children or your grandchildren? How many of you want that? It's not a bad thing for us to want to be healthy. It is not a bad thing to want to provide. But if we're not careful, those become the driving factors in our faith to where we are more focused on God as a supernatural Santa Claus who we think is going to always make life good for us and give us what we want and always make us better and always give us more and we completely miss out on the Gospel. And there are churches that will pack in thousands just preaching to that desire in people's lives. But if they're not careful in doing it, they will completely miss the Gospel. I saw a great example of this several years ago. I was watching an interview, a secular news program, and they were interviewing uh, a man at the time who was uh, the minister at the, the largest, one of the largest churches in our country. And they were interviewing he and his wife. And, and he and his wife were talking about uh, how, how excited they were about all these people that God was bringing to their churches and people who wouldn't go to other churches and how their church was attracting all these folks that wouldn't go anywhere else. And I'll never forget, the, the wife shared the story about what had happened a few weeks before. Uh, she said, this, this was an example of the fruit of their ministry. They, this family came forward after their service to talk to them. And they were so excited because they finally found a place they could all come to together. The, 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 I can't remember if it was the wife or the husband, but one of the spouses had grown up Christian. But the other had grown up Buddhist. And they had with them that day at this church a relative who was an agnostic who didn't even believe in God. And all three of them were excited because they said, we love what you're teaching here and we can't wait to come back next week. You're just speaking to all of us. Now think about that for a second. If what we teach in our church equally speaks to the Christian, the Buddhist, and the agnostic, then what is it we are teaching in our churches? That the gospel of Jesus Christ is not attractive 
the agnostic. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not attractive to the Buddhists. In fact, the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't attractive to many Christians <laughs> because it tells them they need to repent and turn from their sin. And if what we present and what we put out there is just focusing on the external and the behavior, we may draw all kinds of folks in and we may just send them out the same way we brought them in. There is a kind of preaching, a kind of church that attracts those who are spiritually blind and spiritually dead to the point that they never understand that they're spiritually blind or spiritually dead. And that's the great danger. Because there's a very real enemy in our world who wants us to remain blind, wants us to remain dead. And he doesn't do it by making us stand up and say, well, I'm joining the church of Satan today. (laughs) He does it by slowly luring us in his way. There's a great book I commend to you if you haven't read it before. It's by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. And in that book, it basically is a fictional dialogue that takes place between a senior demon in hell and a junior demon. And they're talking about all the ways they can tempt man. And it's very insightful. On one occasion, and I'll put this quote in your notes there, the senior devil is talking to his trainee, and he says this to him. The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. He's saying that the way you get people... (laughs) To go to hell is you just kind of slowly let them go the way they're going. Don't do anything shocking. It doesn't have to be that they're shaking their fist towards God. In fact, if you just convince them they're okay, that's all you need to do. And sadly, in many of our churches today, that's what we've done. We basically presented a message that, that you're okay and I'm okay and God just wants a better life for us. If that's where we're at, then we will easily slumber in church. Point two Perhaps another reason that Eutychus may have been sleeping, that we may sleep, is because we're holding on to sin. And see, the Scripture makes this very clear picture that if we're holding on to sin, light exposes sin and reveals the sin, and then we've got to make a choice. <laughs> Are we going to turn from that sin? Or are we going to hold on to it all the more? And if we're holding on to it all the more, then this is what we do when the truth is proclaimed. We put our fingers in our ears and we cover up our eyes because we don't want our darkness to be exposed by the light. But we want to hold on to our sin. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now notice how the writer of Hebrews describes sin. It's very differently than I think we typically think about sin. See, I think the average Christian thinks of it this way. Well, I need to run the race for Jesus, and so I'm just going to be running along, and that devil, I've got to watch out, because he's going to put obstacles in my way. Now, that devil's going to be hiding in the bushes, and he's going to throw rocks at me, and he's going to do anything he can to distract me and mess me up. I've always got to be on the lookout for that devil. But notice what the writer of Hebrews here says, and how he describes it. He says, no. In order for you to run the race with Christ to begin with, what do you first need to do? You you need to let go of sin. And so the way he describes it isn't that the devil's trying to lay all these traps. The way he describes it is we in our flesh, we don't want to let go of sin. Why do we sin? Because we like it. 
You ever try to let go of something you like? I mean, if it was that easy just to let go of things we liked, nobody would ever fail to die, would they? <laughs> We'd all be perfectly physically fit. Well, why do we struggle to stay on a diet? Because, newsflash, foods that make me fat taste better than foods that make me skinny. And sitting on the couch is more comfortable than standing up. Shocking. Why do we do the things we do? Because we like them. Why do we sin? Because we like it. And so if we're just trying to externally affect people and say, oh, just let go of sin and stop doing bad stuff and just do good stuff, and if you do good stuff and not bad stuff, you're going to be so much happier, then what do we say to the person who chooses sin and it makes them happy? (laughs) See, the Gospel does not say to us, stop sinning, And start doing good things and you'll just be so happy. The gospel says that sin will make you happy for a season. But it will never satisfy you. And so what do you have to do to get that happiness? you got to go for more sin. And more sin. And the next thing and the next thing. And then what happens? You end up in that place that so many have been in. Perhaps some of you are in today where sin takes you farther than you ever intended to go and it costs you more than you ever thought you would pay. We cannot convince people through external motivations to stop sinning. We need to help them understand what the gospel proclaims to us. And if someone is choosing to hold on to their sin, well then they're not going to be listening to God's word. Because God's Word exposes that sin. And so it could be for Eutychus, it could be for us today, the reason we struggle to stay awake, we struggle to engage, is because as soon as we get to that point, when we start getting convicted about our sin, we shut it all down. (laughs) Because we don't want to let go of our sin. We, We like our sin. We need to ask a different question, though. We need to ask not what pleases us. We need to ask, what what pleases the Lord? Ephesians 5, Paul writes this, Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. For instance, you realize that that, that's the question the Christian is to ask? Because I don't know that that's the question a lot of Christians ask. (laughs) I think when faced with decisions, with issues, most Christians ask this question. What's going to make me happy? God wants me to be happy, we tell ourselves. So what's going to please me? What's going to make me happy? You realize that in all of Paul's letters, and all the New Testament, I would say in all the Bible, there's not a lot there about what's going to make us happy. (laughs) But what we do see here is this teaching. We need to try to discern what's going to please the Lord. And good comes from that. And joy. And you may very well find the greatest joy and happiness in your life in that place. But the fundamental call here is not to ask, what pleases me? It is what pleases the Lord. So here's how that plays out. The writer of Hebrews says, let go of your sin. It clings tightly to you. Then we ask the question, okay, what is sin? Okay, well, does this please the Lord? And most of you know the answer to that question with whatever it is you're doing right now. Most of you 
If you are indeed a believer and, and the Spirit of the living God lives within you, as soon as it comes to mind, you, you know whether that's pleasing the Lord or not. And what we do is we then say, okay, it's not pleasing the Lord, so I'm going to do one of two things here. I've either got to let go of it, which means I'm going to repent and I'm going to turn from it. We saw a picture of this in the last chapter of Acts where they're just throwing stuff in the fire to get rid of it. And so repentance is you just, you just get rid of it. You let go of it. You end the relationship. You quit the job. You do whatever you got to do. Get out of Dodge. Get away from it. But that's not what a lot of us do. A lot of us, when we feel that initial sense of conviction, our grip gets that much tighter. <laughs> And we hold on to it and we might have all kinds of excuses. And, and usually when we do that, we don't do it in a way where we say, well, I'm going to hold on to sin. <laughs> How are you doing today? It's good to see you at church. Well, I'm not glad to be here because I'm just holding on to sin. And I'm not going to let go of it. How are you doing? We, we don't usually say that. Now, usually what happens is when we're holding on to sin, if you're holding on to sin today, rather than respond to the word in conviction, we respond to the word with criticism. Well, I don't know who that pastor thinks he is. <laughs> he needs to go let go of some sin in his life. Is that telling me what I need to let go of in my life? Well, I don't. I, I, that's just the way you read the Bible. That's just your opinion of it. And I don't need to change my life because of your opinion. And what usually comes out rather than conviction and responding to it is just criticism. And then where that leads us is eventually we just walk out the door and we go find that other church where they're just going to talk to us about how to have a better job, better relationships, better, 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 but never get to the issue of our heart and our need to repent. And we might say it in the terms of, well, I just didn't get anything out of that. Rather than respond to conviction, we respond with criticism. Perhaps Eutychus was... Never awake, perhaps Eutychus was holding on to sin. Perhaps point three here, perhaps Eutychus was like a lot of us. We fall asleep, point three, because we're bored. <laughs> we're just bored out of our minds. I mean, there's a couple avenues to this, and I don't want to go way down this trail, but you think about the culture we live in today, how we have entertainment around us constantly, and there's always something going on. I remember a few years back when our youngest was younger trying to watch Sesame Street with her. And, and I thought, man, I, I don't, I can't keep up with it. There was like a different image every five seconds. And it was like the channel was clicking around. And they're just engaged with it. And I'm like, whoa, I'm, that, that's our world today. Our world is constant information and stuff being thrown at us. And so then we ask people to come sit in a pew and listen for 30, 40 47 and a half minutes. You know, that's kind of boring to a lot of folks. But I think there's something to it other than just the culture we live in. And I think certainly we wouldn't make the argument that, that, that Eutychus was bored because he wanted to go check Twitter or Facebook or something else. It could just be that Paul's preaching was boring. There, there are boring preachers. Perhaps one here today. And so, you think about that. I don't think that was the situation, at least with Paul, though. 
And not just because Paul's Paul, but you think about the context. We talked about this over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Paul, when he's in Ephesus, is teaching five hours a day, six days a week for two years straight. And we talked about it. in order for us to get that much teaching, we would have to come to church for 120 years hearing a 30-minute sermon every Sunday, 52 Sundays a year for 120 years straight. And so the... That the Ephesian believers, and now the folks that Paul was talking to, I don't think the issue is that, well, Paul was just so boring. And I think there's two sides to this, this issue of being bored. One could be the preacher's boring, the content's boring. The other could be we've got a heart issue on our part. And I think perhaps that could have been the case with Eutychus, and perhaps that's the case with you and I. That we're bored because, well, we've, we've heard it all before. <laughs> It's familiar to us. Well, here he goes, talking about the gospel again. You know, heard the gospel before. I know the gospel. I don't think you need to tell me the gospel again. And so we live in this culture where people feel like they always have to hear something new. And that bleeds over into the church. And so we come to church, we want to, we want to hear something new. We want to hear a new thing. Tell me something new, Pastor. You do realize, don't you, that in the Scripture... Those who always wanted to hear something new. <laughs> that's not necessarily the people we want to model our life after. For example, Paul there in Athens talks about if he went and spoke to the Athenians and they were lost as could be. <laughs> but they had this desperate desire for knowledge and the scripture said they gathered together because they always wanted to hear what was new. And I think there's some in the church like that today who are just bored with the gospel and they just want to hear something fanciful. And they just want to hear something new. Here's the problem. If the gospel bores you, then everything in the Bible is going to bore you. Because everything in the Bible points towards the gospel. And that's why in order to read Genesis and understand it, you have to start with the gospel. Because <laughs> if you don't understand the gospel, you're not going to understand Genesis. And in order to understand Revelation, you've got to read the Gospel. Because if you don't understand the Gospel, then you're not going to understand Revelation. You're not going to understand anything in this if you don't first understand the Gospel. And once you understand the Gospel, well then you read the rest of the Bible in light of that, and then you see the Gospel everywhere. And it does not bore you. It excites you. Because you realize what the Gospel is. That's what we were saying about earlier. You realize the beauty of the gospel that, that God has not said to you and me, okay, Richard, try your absolute hardest and maybe it'll be good enough to save you from an eternal hell. No, the gospel is, Richard, stop trying. <laughs> You're never going to be perfect in fact, if you do one, one thing, just that thought in your head, you are desperately lost in your sin because that is your nature. You're spiritually dead. And the only one that ever has been perfect was Jesus Christ who went to the cross, died in our place, gave us a righteousness we didn't deserve and took on a debt that He didn't deserve. And if that bores you, then I think you're blind. And I think you're deaf to it and you just don't see it. Because once you see it, well then it's the greatest news in the world. And I'll tell you something about great news. You don't ever get tired of it. 
You go to the doctor. And they tell you your child will never hear. And you go back and God's done something miraculously and now your child can hear. You don't get tired of hearing that, do you? You, you don't say, oh yeah, we know that, tell me something new. <laughs> Some of you have had cancers and diseases and sicknesses and you remember going to the doctor that day when they read the report and they said, it's gone. You probably didn't say, okay, let's go to Wendy's now. <laughs> Some of you might even said, could, could you say that one more time? And what did you do when you got home? You called people and you told them. And you love to tell people that. Good news is good news no matter how many times you've heard it. And so if the good news is boring to you, then maybe you don't understand what the good news is because you think you're okay and you don't need the gospel. And if that's the case, then you're blinder than you realize. It may be that you sleep because you've never been awake. It may be that you sleep because you're in sin and you won't let go of it. And maybe you sleep because you're so bored with the gospel. Let me remind you of the beauty of it. We see it right here in this passage. Do you see the picture of the gospel here? Eutychus falls three stories and dies. Now, some will take a liberal reading of this and say, well, maybe he wasn't dead. Maybe he was just, you know, partially dead. You're laying there, you know, I'm not dead yet. But you know what the Greek says? He was dead. <laughs> like dead, dead. Like dead, you're not partially dead, you're just dead. Completely helpless. Lying on the ground. And the Scripture says, Paul comes to him, and this is where we don't know exactly what Paul did. He may have picked him up in his arms, or Paul may have even stretched his arms out over him. Look at your Bible there. Some of y'all will have there, in Acts chapter 20, you'll, you'll have a little cross-reference there, down there where it talks about Paul going to Eutychus in verse 10 and bending over him and taking his, his arms around him. Some of y'all have a little cross-reference there. It says 1 Kings 17. You know what happened in 1 Kings 17? Elijah, the widow, her son has died. And Elijah, the Scripture says, stretches out his arms over that boy's cold, dead body. He puts his hands to his hands and his face to his face. And God brings life back into that boy through this one with outstretched arms. Here Paul goes... And he picks up this boy. And as he does, with those arms, we were reminded of another who with outstretched arms brought the dead to life. Because on the cross, Jesus picked up every one of us in our spiritual deadness and blindness and breathed life into us through the gospel. And if that bores you, then we need to pray that you might see and you might hear. Because what may have happened to you is the gospel is boring because the enemy has lulled you to sleep. I'll close with this. I was reminded during my study this week of something I'd read a number of years ago. Martin Luther, the great reformer, once shared a parable of sorts. It was a dream that he had. And I'll share with you what he dreamed. Luther dreamt about how on one occasion... 
The devil sat upon his throne listening to his agents report on the progress they had made in opposing the truth of Christ and destroying the souls of men. One spirit said that there was a company of Christians crossing the desert. I loosed the lions on them. And soon the, the sands of the desert were stained with the blood from their corpses. What of that? answered Satan. The lions destroyed their bodies, but their souls were saved. And it's their souls that I was after. Another reported, there was a company of Christian pilgrims and they were sailing through the sea on a vessel. And I said, a great wind against the ship that drove the ship on the rocks and every Christian aboard was drowned. What of that, said Satan. Their bodies were drowned at sea, but their souls were saved, and it was their souls that I was after. And then a third came forward and gave his report. He said, for ten years I've been trying to cast a Christian into a deep sleep, and at last I have succeeded. And with that, the corridors of hell rang with shouts of triumph. Friends, the call from the Scripture for us today is if we're asleep, we need to wake up. And the only thing that will wake you and I up is the living Word of God and the Spirit of God. And so I leave you with this Word from God. Romans chapter 13, verses 11 and 12. You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off works of darkness and put on the armor of light. 1 Corinthians 15.34 Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. Ephesians 5.14 Awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. If you'll pray with me. Father God, I pray that you would do the work that only you can do. That you would bring dead people to life. That we might understand this picture of the gospel we have before us today. A young man lying dead on the ground who's brought back to life. And that spiritually, that, that is us. Apart from the gospel, we are dead in the trespasses of our sin. And, and we need the gospel of the living God to bring us to life. I pray, Lord, for those this morning who perhaps have responded to that gospel, who have been brought to life, and yet they are clinging to sin. And Lord, I don't need to name their sin, because Your Spirit already has. Your Word has. They know it is sin. And so Lord, I pray, rather than being slumbered to sleep in their sin, Lord, that the light would shine on the darkness and expose it and that they would turn from it. Lord, that they would not respond in criticism, but that they would respond in authentic repentance and conviction. Lord, I pray for us as we each know someone today who is asleep who is spiritually dead. Lord, I pray that you would do a work to bring them to life. And God, I pray that if the gospel is ever boring to any of us, Lord, that you might convict us of that and remind us of the beauty and the grace that we see in it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, if you would stand as we offer today an opportunity of response and invitation. Uh, this is a time for you to just consider...
what we've sang about today and what we've studied today in God's Word. And just to ask the question, even as we sing, Lord, am I asleep? (laughs) And if so, wake me up. And if that's a response to the gospel of confessing Jesus as Lord and believing God indeed raised Him from the dead, then we invite you to come share that confession with this church family. We invite you to come join this church family. But this time is not just for those who might walk an aisle and confess those things. This is an opportunity for each of us to take a moment to consider, Lord, I've seen Your Word today. I've heard Your Word today. How do I need to respond to Your Word today? Take that to heart as we give a moment for response.